Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Just a warning here, our episode today deals with the topic of suicide, if you would rather tune out. It's been nearly 25 years since members of the Heaven's Gate cult died in a mass suicide in San Diego County. On March 26, 1997, police entered a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe to find 39 people dead, all wearing matching outfits and Nike sneakers. In videos they left behind, members explained they were leaving their bodies to catch a spaceship that was in the tail of the Hale-Bopp comet, and they would follow their leader, Marshall Applewhite, to become what they called a level above human. Caitlin Rother was a journalist at the Union Tribune at the time and covered the story for the next two and a half years. Well, Caitlin, thank you for joining me. Uh, as I said in the introduction, you're a former reporter at the UT who covered uh, Heaven's Gate in 1997. What was your first thought when this, this news broke? Had you heard of the cult? No, I hadn't heard of the cult, but curiously, there's another group, which I also wrote about in the East County called Unarius or Unarians. I can't quite remember exactly, but they were in a way similar to this group. They thought that there was a spaceship that was going to come and land and it was going to be, I don't know, like 13 stories or something. And they were all going to pile in. They all thought they had been uh, reincarnated and that they had previous lives and every woman I talked to um, had been Cleopatra. So I kind of felt like (laughs) they were similar though. It was all about going to space. Um, And it was sort of strange, you know, that they thought they were going to get picked up and go. So I don't know where that idea came from, but it something about San Diego draws people. Um, we've had some very big news stories here, and this was one of the biggest ever um, and weirdest, honestly. If you sure. look at the annals of weird history, <laughs> this is one, the big thing. Okay, so you were off work the first day, uh, but you know the the day after you got to work covering this, and you were able to cobble together a really interesting story, an inside look at what was going on in this mansion. How did you go about that? You know, I was trying to remember exactly how this came about, but I had kind of a weird specialty at the Union Tribune, and that was to cover strange deaths, bizarre deaths, and suicides in particular. Um, It was actually ironic and uncanny, but some of these same stories that I wrote about suicide, um, my husband, who died by suicide in 1999, two years after this happened, he would read these stories and we would talk about them. So I had some knowledge from covering county government as my beat that there was this little known office, the public guardian, public administrators, and they basically take over the estate and they bury people who don't have any other family members, either they can't find them or they don't have any, or they don't have any money and they're indigent. Um, And I had worked with them on, on a story or two before, and I can't remember exactly the details, but I thought, hey, I should, you know, give them a call. And that's how I ended up getting access to all of the belongings of this cult. And, you know, I had another kind of talent that that I've grown to to build even more as an author now, um, because I don't have what you guys have, which is really great, a library, quote unquote, of somebody to do database searches for you and find people. I have to find people um, and find information about people who are are gone. You know, they can't tell me themselves. So 
I had to think of ways, creative and enterprising ways to gather information about people who can't talk to me or don't want to talk to me. And so this is one of them. And, and by going through this list, this extensive list of all of their stuff that, that was seized from the mansion. And I, I'm going over my stories and I, they were so specific that I think I literally got a chance to tour them and look at all the items, you know, visually and pick up them because I'm describing these um, capsules that they would take like vitamin supplements or whatever that looked and smelled like brewer's yeast. So I'm pretty sure that I was literally able to go and inspect these items that had been seized. And it was like a treasure trove, you know, for somebody like me who just is like trying to figure out why did these people do this? How were they living? What were they thinking? What was, how did this cult work? What were their, you know, philosophies? What was the purpose of this? And what I learned from this ended up being so incredibly helpful for when I um, co-wrote this book, Hunting Charles Manson, because a cult, you know, may be different. The Manson cult and the Heaven's Gate cult may be different, but there are some very similar um, practices and approaches that they use for mind control to keep these people, you know, they have to, you know, I call it brainwashing with Manson, with these guys. I mean, you, it's up to you how you look at it, but you know, it takes a lot to get 39 people to, to kill themselves at once, you know, and they did, and they were all happy about it. So it it was fascinating to me and, and to see how they lived. I mentioned in the essay, um, what was the, one of the things that stands out for me even today is this diagram of how they sat and watched this 72 inch television in one room. They literally had a seating chart that I looked at and I, you know, it was like the certain leaders, um, it was a hierarchical in nature. And so the, the people who had the higher positions got a better view of the TV, you know, it was, and what they were allowed to watch and what they weren't allowed to watch. It was all mind control. And that's a lot of what cults are about. Wow. Yeah, that was a really fascinating part of your essay. So was it sci-fi good? Anything with sexual content bad? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I didn't put this in the essay because I had to keep it to 750 words. And, you know, I write books for a living. It's really hard to <laughs> write something so short. But uh, Sound of Music was apparently the cult leader's favorite movie. So they were able to watch that, Chicago Hope, you know, things that were hopeful, that were good, that helped them, you know, get along better because apparently, you know, they just weren't supposed to be better than the other or more competitive with the other. They weren't supposed to be thinking of themselves. It was a communal uh, group and they, it's, you know, group think. And that was really similar to the Manson family as well. So it's just that Manson used more terror and fear. And I think this cult was different in that everybody seemed very happy and they weren't using a bunch of mind altering drugs because they didn't find any uh, psychoactive uh, drugs on the property. It didn't seem like anybody was being treated for mental health. Um, and in the Manson cult, for example, you know, they took a lot of LSD, a lot. And that was on purpose to help with the mind control. And they were using a lot of other illicit drugs that they were also selling. And so it's, this is very different. These people went into this with, I guess you can call it a clear mind, but obviously, you know, I, I don't think they really went to join the comet. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, <laughs> but, but who am I to say, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. Right. 
<laughs> well, yeah, really interesting. But I mean, digging through all the documents that you had access to, I mean, what were you able to figure out about their intentions and what they they were doing? They thought that they were going to, you know, they they came from this place, you know, above human, the level above human in some other place, the kingdom of God, they also called it. They came from there. They took over these earthly containers we call bodies. And then they shed those earthly vessels and went, you know, they're going to go catch this <laughs> spaceship and their spirit, I guess, was going to rejoin where they came from. So it's pretty esoteric. I, I can't really, I can't really say I understand it, but it was, you know, cults are often, you know, religious and this was their religion, essentially, that this is what they believe. And there are other people who have other religions who believe they're going to go to heaven, right? So this is what they thought was heaven. That's the easiest way that I can, try, simplest way I can really try to put it. Well, I think your beat at the time was so interesting. As you said, strange deaths. I don't think we have a strange deaths reporter on staff anymore. So like what was going on at the time or how did you carve out that job for yourself? It wasn't a beat per se. It was sort of one of those things where I was assigned to an editor, but other editors would come over to me and say, hey, I think you, this would be good for you. And I had some of my best, I got some of my best stories that way is that one of the other editors who wasn't my editor came over with a news brief or a tip or something. Um, for example, um, I, um, an editor came over to me, uh, John Gilmore, who is a long retired, really sweet man, came over to me one time and he said, hey, you know, I heard about this. There was a a little girl who had been hit by a car and her, um, she was, she and her little brother were crossing the street, going to school in the crosswalk. She was thrown 80 feet and she ended up, um, you know, being brain dead, but they were able to take all of her organs and give them to, you know, five or six different people. And I followed all those people for a year. And I wrote this very long narrative series and it won five awards. And it was about, all the people that her organs helped. And it was just such a, you know, and it was right around the same time as this actually. Um, and it was very healing for me because my husband took his own life. And so it made me, it was a healing thing. So that was, a, and, and the other thing that happened around the same time, another editor, Juliet Hendricks, who I think is still with your paper, um, brought me a little news brief about a guy who was 19 years old and lit himself on fire in the parking lot of a Walmart out in East County and died, you know, 12 hours later from the burns that were all over his body. And I wrote um, a story that the paper ended up nominating for a Pulitzer about, you know, why did he do this? Obviously, he couldn't have known how much this was going to hurt other people who he was leaving behind, who were devastated by the loss of him taking his life at so young. And also how much it was physically going to hurt him because being burned is apparently some of the worst pain you can feel. So, um, and that was in right around the same time, 1998, 99. So in that two or three year period, um, there was also another story that I wrote about a guy who, um, was kind of a loner, you know, depressed. He was divorced, but he used to dance with these people. And that was kind of the only real human contact he had, but things just weren't going well in his life. 
he tried to kill himself a number of different ways and he finally put foil on the insides of, of his windows in a condo and I think it was Claremont, um, basically got in bed and stopped eating. And he mummified himself. And 18 months later, his condo had been foreclosed on. And I think it was an agent and a couple people who came in to look at the apartment found no. his mummified remains. These were the stories I was writing at this time. Oh. Very, you know, but I couldn't interview these people because they were gone, right? So I talked to their families and their friends and basically tried to paint a portrait of who these people were and why they did what they did. So, and I, you know, my latest book, um, is on the Rebecca Zahau case, which the sheriff's department declared was a suicide and her family insists that it's a murder. Um, and I, you know, also bringing in as a lens, the death of my own husband by suicide in April of 1999. So it's sort of a strange specialty I have, but I do have a professional background in covering suicides. And, and this story about this Heaven's Gate mass suicide was one of those stories at that time. And I covered it until it ended essentially with a probate trial. Um, so it was two and a half years, actually. It was, I was the one who continued to cover this story. Everybody else covered it at initially, everybody on staff. If you look at the pages, I'm looking at all the bylines. Every, I think everybody <laughs> did something. And that's why I was so jealous. I came in, I missed the first day. I'm like, wait, I want to be down there. I want to be helping. <laughs> I was so upset. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, these stories are so um, tragic, you know, but also fascinating. And I am, I am sorry uh, to hear about your own loss. Oh, I mean, do you, you do you think that your own experience, um, your own trauma in, in, informs your work? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have an insight into what um, what people go through um, right before they kill themselves because I was living with my husband. And the thing about the thing about it is, and the thing I learned and the thing that I've heard people tell me as I interview them for these stories, including Jonah Shacknai, who was the boyfriend of Rebecca Zahau, um, that is, you can't really, and he believes that Rebecca committed, uh, died by suicide, and I don't take a position in the book, but I'm just saying this is something I learned from my own personal experience. When somebody takes their own life, they are not in a rational state of mind. Um, so it's, you know, almost silly to try to to bring in rationality to somebody who's in that state. The thing that's interesting about this cult though, is it's more like, a, you know, you can have a family. I've read about this recently and I just saw a movie about it. Kind of like a group hysteria where they all have the same fear or they, in this case, they all had the same hope. They all have the same group belief and they fed each other's um, idea that this is what was going to happen to them after they took their own lives with, with the phenobarbital. Um, people have an idea of what it's going to be like. And all I can say about my husband is I wasn't with him in the last few days, but I was with him in the, in the weeks and, you know, years before, and he was a chronic alcoholic. He was very depressed and he also had a mix of, um, he was on the wrong medication. He was on, I, I can't remember what it was. Um, I used to, I've blocked it out of my mind, but it was a medication that um, definitely he was not reacting well to. So he had a whole mix of his own natural issues with his brain chemistry and then to have the wrong medication. Um, 
you know, if you have the wrong medication and you have some mental illness, it can really drive you over the edge, you know, and they've found that that's a danger with some antidepressants that you have to be very careful of suicidal ideations. But again, this cult, they weren't taking any medications. So it was just all what they were hoping and what they thought they were going to get out of doing this, which in and of itself is fascinating. And is a, you know, is a cautionary tale. I think you have to be careful about misinformation and, you know, conspiracy theories and, and how that can damage people. And that's what we're seeing in our world. And that was what I kind of closed the essay with lessons learned, you know, charismatic leaders um, put out misinformation and, and delusion and fantasy and, and people, they convince people to harm themselves. So, or other people in the, in the case of the Manson family, they went and killed other people. So. Well, it's interesting to me that you've made a career telling these strange and mysterious crime stories, many of them set in San Diego, many but not all, many of them set in Southern California. Is there something going on here or is this is this just uh, the, the way it is? You know, is this, can I you find ha- similar stories in other cities? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think that you just have to be good at finding them. And this is my quote unquote territory. This is my beat. Um as a true crime author, um, I have friends who are true crime authors too, and we live in different parts of the country. So we kind of carve out our own little niche in our area. And this happens to be mine. (laughs) So, but it's just too, you know, it's not really logically and logistically feasible to really do books in other parts of the country as well as you can do in your own backyard. We do have the internet though these days, which is incredibly helpful. Some states uh, have great online resources with courts and what have you and other places do not. So for example, I can write a book about Florida from my living room in San Diego, uh, almost better than I can write about a story in San Diego in some cases because I literally have to go to the courthouse and pull documents here in San Diego, whereas in Florida, they're online. So as a reporter, journalist, uh, author, it's great to have access to stories that you don't have to leave your house for, especially during COVID. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I do get in my car and drive to courthouses and I do get in my car and drive and talk to people and look at things, but I just, I like to cover things here. Cause also when you're promoting a book, you know, people who or in your general area tend to be the ones who buy those stories more. They care more about it if it happened in their own backyard. Thank you again for listening to the San Diego News Fix. I wanted to add that today, Caitlin Rother is a New York Times bestselling author, and she's currently writing a book about the murder of the McStay family of Fallbrook, who disappeared in 2010 before their bodies were discovered three years later outside of Victorville. You can find more of her work at CaitlinRother.com. That's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-R-O-T-H-E-R.com. Thanks for listening.